Hi, welcome to The Science of Fiction. I'm Will Thompson. Andy can't be with us today. I think he's in a car on a motorway somewhere. Uh, but today I'm joined by Cam Robinson, who's the host of GameSpot's What If Machine. Hi, Cam. Hey, how's it going? Not bad. Yourself? Very well, thank you. Very well. So the What If Machine is actually a little bit similar to the format of this show, right? Yeah, it seems to be, um, it does seem to be quite similar in the type of topics and the manner in which you, you try to investigate science, which is, which is pretty cool. So, but, uh, but unlike us, you're a video show, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, um, for those of your, for your listeners who haven't heard of GameSpot, we are, uh, this will be a very quick plug, I promise. We're the, um, <laughs> the, the, the world's biggest gaming only site. Anyway, what I do there is I make videos and my background is actually science as opposed to gaming strictly. So what I try to do is uh, take a look at topics in video games, like usually science fiction topics, and now ask the question, hey, could this happen in real life? Or how close is modern science bringing us to this in real life? That sounds good. How did you, how did you get from a full-on science background into video making? Um, a bit of a strange one, really. I mean, I, I went from, I did science degree and then didn't really enjoy the lab work. I love the theory, always have loved theory, but mm-hmm. find the lab work to be a bit dry. And I was doing like real-time PCR, which was a lot of mixing tiny amounts of liquids with other tiny amounts of liquids, which you know, didn't really hold me. And then I just got into science communication and then from that got into graphics and video. So a bit of a, bit of a strange one. And then moved to London when the job at GameSpot came up. Uh-huh. And I guess, I, I guess games have always been a thing you've enjoyed. Yeah, I mean, science has always been the thing I love, kind of like my, my faithful wife. And then uh, games <laughs> was that, that, that kind of bit on the side, which I, I, you know, when I should have been studying science, I would be playing video games. Now it's kind of flipped, which is quite interesting. <laughs> so now, now, now the science is the uh, guilty hobby, as it were. Exactly, exactly. Excellent. Okay, well, well today we're going to be talking about, about uh, some... Uh, various bits of science that crop up in video games um, Mm -hmm. and uh, listening to some of Cam's music. So back after this.
that was, of course, Paranoid Android by Radiohead. Cam, why did you pick that? Well, I mean, aside to the fact that it's a it's a great tune and one I've I've always really liked. Um, Absolutely. The, one of the one of the main, in fact, my favorite episode, my favorite topic we covered on the What If Machine this year was all to do with cybernetics, cyborgs, and I figured Android cyborgs. That's not too tenuous a link to to do here. And um, the game, the video game that we that the episode dealt with was called Deus Ex Human Revolution. Now, if your listeners are familiar with this, then they'll know that it's a great piece of science fiction storytelling. If, if you've not heard of it, basically it's a game set in this kind of Blade Runner-esque universe. And you play a main character who, right at the begin- beginning of the game, gets in a bit of a, an accident and loses basically all his limbs and is then rebuilt with these advanced prostheses. And it's a really amazing example, actually, of um, a game which, or even any sort of science fiction narrative, which, t- which kind of lends from reality and extrapolates really quite accurately. I mean, you look at the, the limbs and even kind of the, the, the issues around the limbs that are presented in the game, they, they are, almost, not frighteningly, but, but incredibly similar to the kind of real cutting edge we see now. And that's why it made such a great topic, I think, for the show. And that, that's actually quite different to the original Deus Ex, which is the only one I've played, I have to admit, uh, in, in, which was, I think, set a bit further in the future. Exactly. All, all the augmentations there were relatively fantastical. I mean, don't get me wrong, none, none of the augmentations in Deus Ex Human Revolution you can, you can walk into you know, the hospital and get yourself fitted with. It, it is, it sure, is sure, definitely sure. future-gazing, but you're right, it is actually, it was set as a prequel I think it was set in the same universe, but hundreds yeah. of years before, and oh. it was basically as the whole augmentation. Basically, the whole game, the the whole series is about augmentations and using these augmentations to help you kick ass and solve problems. And um, but in this in this universe, it was right at the beginning of the story. And it's a, if if you're into video games, it's a fantastic story. It's a great piece of science fiction storytelling, um, and. Uh, it, it really sees the, the, the roots of this prosthetics movement and it deals with a lot of the ethics of people, um, you know, some people having these augmentations and maybe and having this advantage and some people not. But, but in terms of how they look, that's what really struck me is if you look at the most advanced prosthetics um, today, things like the uh, stuff being made by B-Bionic, I think, or like um, the Eyelim Pulse, they are this kind of really nice kind of black and grey pieces of kit which which are incredibly cool looking you know like i I love i love that kind of direction that prostheses are taking now and day sex was just like that and it it was a great way actually to say to our gaming audience hey you know this you know these um this chap you you relate to and love playing as in video games well you know his prosthetics are incredibly similar to the cutting edge now and an example i really like is he's got this um he's got this eye piece which allows him to kind of zoom in on things and and take uh-huh. pictures and, and things like that. But in real life, I mean, there are some of the most advanced eye prosthe- prostheses. There's actually, um, I think it was last year, there were some incredible studies where, they, where people who'd been born blind were fitted with these kind of rudimentary um, sensors and they were able to distinguish on a table between like a banana and an apple. And oh, these, wow. are pre- these are people who previously had absolutely no sight. So, I mean, obviously, what we're seeing in Deus Ex, the ability to, like, see through walls and everything is, is you know, extrapolating a lot and sometimes, you know, just kind of venturing into the impossible. But it's just a great vehicle to kind of look at where we are now. And I, I don't know, I, I found that the, the current, I mean, we're not at the state yet 
in in real life where you know me, you or i are going to be nipping down to the limb clinic and getting like a, an improved arm or an improved leg or an improved eye definitely not but you know i, I think it's only a matter of time until current technology gets us there which is really exciting and it's, and it's interesting that the um development in um in real prostheses uh, in terms of how in terms of how they look is moving closer to how um that they're put, they're portrayed in these cool video games because historically prostheses have been you know, these these clunky functional objects not really not 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 really renowned for being fashionable as such yeah i think it's um i think it's the designers have realized that that people who who wind up needing these limbs don't necessarily want something which tries to look look human because it's, it's right. very difficult to make something that looks realistically human and you run that risk of the uncanny valley you know right. but um what i love to see is people taking like an artistic approach and you'll see the, some of these beautiful designed limbs and it just makes i think it makes people who who wear them who, who use them day to day you know it, it gives them a sense of pride of you know i really i really like this piece of kit i've got and um i've seen some amazing um, videos. In fact, people who work in the same office as us, the website CNET recently did some fantastic video, um, I think, with the latest range of bee bionic limbs. And, and you can see them just changing people's lives. And they just, they just look awesome, you know? So I think that's yeah, a yeah. really nice advance. And this, this, you're talking about um, a, a, a me- me- mechanical eye to allow blind people to see. It reminds me of um, an article I was reading about uh, how recent smartphones accessibility features have have changed people's lives in ways that i'd never even considered so for example a problem which people who can't see colors or people who are blind who are blind have is they can't pick clothes that match color wise to those of Mm. us who can see colors and there are apps for for iphones or whatever which can um which can distinguish the colors of clothes you're pointing them at in your wardrobe Mm. so that so they can help you to dress um and if you if you point your um your 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 recent phone at a at two people with a, with the camera application some of them can describe which people they're seeing in the screen so you know two faces one left large one background small oh wow that's, um, that's quite it's quite impressive so it, it's it's interesting just just to see how this is just not not something which i don't think anyone could have could have, could have expected uh smartphones to do absolutely i mean i think that's something i've come across with with doing the what if machine is talking to to experts who are researching the fields that video games are kind of extrapolating from and and the kind of the r- running theme is is just how difficult it is to really to predict to to um kind of future gaze any more than like five or ten years it's incredibly difficult i mean every time you see science fiction try to go beyond that kind of 10 15 year mark it becomes it often becomes way off the mark but um it's nice to see um games like deus ex trying trying to kind of base it in reality um and yeah i mean the type of things we're talking about the smartphone apps you know are very much in the realm of the type of things the main character adam jensen has at his disposal
So that was uh, Discipline by Nine Inch Nails, which is kind of a, a weirdly fitting song on that album. Yeah, it is. And it kind of fits weirdly into this discussion as well. I mean, I guess the reason why I, w- I just basically want some Nine Inch Nails on here, because I'm a big fan of Nine Inch Nails, or I have been. And for some reason, Discipline, as you say, doesn't really quite fit into the rest of that album. But it's, it's a good tune. And one I thought, you know, it, it kind of works well with the other tunes I've chosen. But the reason why I wanted Nine Inch Nails is because the next game I want to talk about which is a video game, if anyone's ever heard of video games, will know it's the latest Call of Duty, um, Black Ops 2. And the reason why Nine Inch Nails works for that is because Trent Reznor actually composed the whole soundtrack or oh. the majority of the soundtrack for the latest Call of Duty. Oh, so, wow. He's, he's gone back to game soundtracks. He has, like, yes. Because I, th- I think he did some of the early Quake and Doom games. Yeah, right? he did. He did. And, th- and then a lot of time passed and I guess he focused on being a... Um, a rock star. Rock star <laughs> rather, than, rather than anything else. And then I guess now he's doing movie soundtracks. And yeah, and evident, it's evidently back in the uh... back in the games. And it's it, to be honest, it's pretty good. Um, and the reason why that game is here is because actually it was one of the the more interesting ones I managed to discuss in the first season of the What If Machine. And it's not one that you might think, well, you know, where's the science fiction in, in Call of Duty, right? It's all shooting guns. Well, the most recent one was actually set like 15 years in the future. This is Black Ops Two. Uh-huh. And it's all about autonomous robots. And I chatted to a guy who you will probably be familiar with, and your your listeners might be too, a chap by the name of Noel Sharkey. Now, he was the uh, the expert on Robot Wars, if you ever watched that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's a fascinating guy. Like, I mean, I can highly urge you to check him out on, on the internet and hear what he's saying these days. In fact, he did a really interesting um, interview on the BBC's Life Scientific um, with Jim Al-Khalili. So if anyone knows that, I can highly recommend going and checking out that interview. But basically, um, obviously, he's, he's, he's a, a roboticist by training, and also, but also with a kind of a really interesting um, kind of psychological bent as well. And what he's really worried about now, actually, consider, and it's quite ironic almost, it seems, seems the opposite of what you expect, seeing as he was on Robot Wars. He's actually really worried about the use of autonomous robots in war. And that is exactly what Modern Warfare 2, or sorry, Black Ops 2, is all about. It's about the use of, I mean, this plot of the video game is, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of simple, but it's about the fact that um, all of our defenses are kind of autonomous. But what happens when... And this is a quote, what happens when the enemy steals the keys, you know? So. Which is a kind of movie plot star threat, but yeah. also isn't, is, is, isn't the least likely thing ever. Well, I guess, it's, I guess it certainly isn't one, it's not one of the, the worries that Noel Sharkey has. I mean, no, no. What, what he's worried about is, is the individual robots and the situations they're put in. For, for example, um, more and more robots are being used more and more and autonomous ones are working their way into, into war zones. I mean, robots are already ubiquitous in war zones, but they're usually controlled by humans. For example, you have robots which, um, who are maybe uh, explosive or IED-finding robots. You'll even have robots which are designed to go into conflict zones and actually extract wounded soldiers. There's this oh, one which what? looks like a teddy bear, which is quite phenomenal. <laughs> I don't know if you've what, seen what, this before. So this teddy bear goes into, the, goes into a combat zone and kind of picks someone up and takes them out again? Yeah, it's well, it's it's on it's on like, like rotors, like rotor blades. So it, you know, it drives kind of like wheels of a tank, and it's remote controlled. Um, but wow. then it can kind of lower its arms and like scoop up, kind of like a forklift shaft. But it looks like a teddy bear, which is which is kind of amazing. Um, so robots are already being used in war, but it's the autonomous ones. When this ties into Call of Duty, which are really um, which are really worrying, and the reason is 
and this is what Noel Sharkey has been trying to spread the word about is is if you put a a, a robot in a situation, it, they cannot. I mean, you can program for a lot of eventualities, but you can't program for every eventuality. Right. AI is is just not is not as advanced as the public perception of AI is. That's another thing that he's saying. I mean, he's got a Noel Sharkey has a big background in in artificial intelligence, and if you put a robot in a situation where, for example, it's um it's behind enemy lines. Um, with a group of of soldiers, and you know, maybe in, you know so surrounded potentially by enemy troops, and one walks across its its path, it maybe can't tell whether or not to shoot because right now you don't want to because it's going to alert all of the people around you and put your entire squad in danger. So you know, it can't really make those decisions if it's on its own, and also decisions like distinguishing combatants from civilians is a very difficult thing to do. It's a very difficult thing to program for. So he's I'm, really worried about about this, and it's and that's one of the very things that comes up in in Black Ops Two. And, and I guess what I guess the the problem there is, it's inevitable that people will want to pro- program autonomous um, war machines to make these kinds of ju- judgment calls. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, if, if if you want to destroy some targets, and th- this machine can tell that there are um, non-combatants around. Um, it it is going to have to make a a judgment call if we can anthropomorphize like that, mm-hmm. um, and at some point someone will decide like, well, making it always err on the side of caution is not 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 a great military strategy. So maybe we'll have to add some kind of you know ethics decision making. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and, and as anyone who's ever written a piece of software will know, that's, <laughs> yes, that's just that's not a great idea. I think one of the big problems is um is the 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 perception of how advanced. AI programming is. I mean, don't get me wrong. You can do some amazing, some amazing things with with programming, but it's nowhere near um, the kind of science fiction ideal of of a robot which really learns and and can think its way around complicated situations like that. And as soon as you take humans out of that equation, it, I think it just becomes way too dangerous. Um, and obviously, as you say, there is a lot of attraction though, because you know you can essentially remove humans from the war zone, right? But I mean. The problem is, is then you have these. You're not. We're not likely to have wars where both sides have these robots. It's going to be the advanced, and more powerful countries, um, and then you probably like some sort of insurgency or or or, or um, what's the I'm looking for? A revolution or something like that. Revolutionary fighters, and it, so so you're actually. I mean, I think there's ethically there's many many questions there. Yeah, and, definitely. Yeah around abuse of power and so on and so is exactly. this the kind of thing which comes up in call of duty well not quite or, or, not quite or, or, so much i guess i guess i guess the player is playing as as the large power who have yeah. all these autonomous machines well yes but, but they're turned against them exactly right. so i mean I, I i don't want to credit black ops 2 plotline with too much intelligence because don't get me wrong the plotline is nuts and <laughs> pretty pretty but what it does do very well is it does again show robots and feature robots which are really close to what we see now you know so uh, or, or right. what we expect to see in the future with with the proviso again that is uh i guess with, i guess with robotics maybe there's a there's a there's a, there's a clearer oracle to the future like that, that we know roughly the trajectory that um autonomous machines are going in right mm. um, much more so than we than we do with uh, consumer technology it seems yes and I guess the military moves more slowly as well. So, so, so. Yeah, I, th- I think the big driver behind autonomous or the desire for autonomous robots is actually if if um something if there is to be a, a conflict in the future with a with a more advanced power, let's like, say China or or Russia or whatever, 
um, you, you know, the, the, the fear is that the first thing that would happen is, is the enemies would jam the signals. So you're going to need robots right. out there, drones out there, which can work autonomously. I think that's where the drive for, the, for them is coming, certainly at the moment. And it's um, also where the danger comes in. Exactly. Yes. So that was uh, TNT by ACDC. And the reason why, you've got to put some ACDC in, in any list for me personally. And um, ideally one with, an, with, with another acronym as its uh, yes, name, right? Yes, exactly. And again, I, I will, I will apologise that this is a very, very tenuous link into the next topic. But uh, the next game I want to talk about is, is a game called Crisis, Crisis, basically. And I almost said Crisis 3 because that's one that's just coming out. Or actually, by the time this goes live, it will be out. Uh-huh. And um, yeah, it's all about nanosuits, so nanotechnology. So why TNT? Well, because it's a, it's a game where you do lots of shooting, lots of things blow up. Um, kind of fits in with the, with the theme of the song, I think. <laughs> but it, I will say it's pretty tenuous. But it's a great tune. It's a great tune. And, presum- and presumably a good, good game. Um, yes, well... well, well uh- isn't Crisis the one which, which which is typically used for stressing video hardware? Exactly right. Yes, the original Crisis was very much the um, you know the, the the game that every PC gamer would try and you know work and work at the rig to try and get it to play. And if you could play Crisis at max, then you won at video games. You know, like that, that was kind of the that was <laughs> kind of the ideal. And it still is. I mean, Crisis Three is just coming out, and it is once again pushing the hardware, and it looks fantastic. It really does. It's a it's a beautiful game. It's a first-person shooter, if, uh, if you're not familiar. But the reason why I like the game and, and the reason why it was a topic for the What If Machine is because it's all about this suit that the, uh, the main protagonist, the player, wears. And it's a nano suit, which is a nice, 
nondescript <laughs> nondescript it's it, it, it's a suit with some kind of magic science yes exactly yeah. hey, hey guys this suit has nanotechnology Ooh, <laughs> but it's actually really great and um in lots of ways so for example um, as a player you can control you can activate a couple of different modes of the suit so one you can you can um, get the suit to adjust its kind of outer surface to um, cloak you, basically, for a limited mm-hmm. period of time. But it consumes suit energy, so you can only do it for a certain amount of time. That's obviously for gameplay reasons, otherwise it would be way too easy. you just run around invisible all day. But also it kind of fits in, actually, quite nicely with a limitation of if you're going to try and build this in real life. But there's also a, an, an armor mode where it kind of... Um, adjusts the surface of the suit to give it more ballistic protection um so 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 arranging its own chemical structure well it, it's, in some unspecified way or well it's, i think the 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 reason they give is that it applies a current through the suit which changes the shape of yeah it kind of changes the surface structure of the of the nano of the nanoparticles so i guess it's carbon nanotubes so it kind of changes the arrangement uh-huh. To give it increased ballistic and blast protection, which isn't actually that nuts, as I'll come to you in a second. Huh. And then you can also um, increase speed, so it kind of somehow increases the performance of your muscles, which is a bit, bit nuts. But it does it through horm- injecting hormones and things, so maybe that's not too far-fetched either. And basically, the reason why I really like this one is it all comes down to... It sounds really farcical, the idea of this super soldier suit that you could wear that could make you invisible and it could give you extra armor and it could make you run faster and stronger. Yeah. But I've actually, de- I've definitely read books about that set, mm. you know, thousands and thousands of years in the future. Exactly. And introducing that as, as fantastical tech even then. Yes. But there is a wonderful grain and sometimes more than a grain of science in each of these things. Now, I spoke to a material chemist, Sujata Kundu, from um i think she's part of ucl and she gave some she gave me a really interesting interview and in particular what i find fascinating was let's go back to the idea of of ballistic blast protection and what you can do to to armor to make it suddenly give you um to give you more protection now initially i found on there's actually a really interesting group out at um, mit in uh in massachusetts in america and there's a it's a it's an a US Army funded laboratory which only which basically work entirely with soldier nanotechnologies which okay. is quite fascinating and they basically um, are one of the things they, they work in one of the areas they are developing is actually um, ballistic and blast protection <clears throat> and it's, it's not quite a suit changing its outer surface per se but it's ways in which you can use um, nanotechnology to decrease um, the severity of an impact. And one of the most huh. interesting ones, which Sujata talked about in her interview, is using non-Newtonian physics, which are, or non-Newtonian fluids specifically, which I'm sure you're familiar of. So th- th- these are the, th- these are materials who, who uh, where, where depending on how, on the force you apply to them, cha- change their resistance to that force? Exactly. So the so classic example... To, sorry, go on. No, I was going to say, that, I think which is what you were going to say as well, the classic example is the cornflower and water solution. Right. Yeah, and um, so there's already work being done in body armor technology now where the idea is that you wear a, a kind of vest or a suit, if you will, filled with this fluid. And, you know, it, so as you walk around, it molds to your shape. It's kind of flexible, comfortable. But as soon as there's an impact, you know, you, as soon as there's a harsh impact, it turns solid with the ability to stop munitions, um, huh. which is fascinating. And it's incredibly intelligent. use. I mean, if you go on onto YouTube, you can see 
the ability of solutions like this cornfly water mix and there's there's even this ones of like swimming pools filled with the stuff and you can like run over the top of it yeah, yeah. Um, or if you stand still you can sink into it so it's it's easy to see that effect and it's fascinating that it is being um applied to to things like body armor and it, it's a great fit because yeah as you say you can walk around and it would be all fluid and comfy and then at the critical moment yeah it bam. turns solid exactly is, so is that, this has actually been used in uh, well kind of the other way around in a, in a game there was a game i'm trying to remember who made it uh, called punch the custard oh yeah uh, so it, where, where he, i'm just trying to remember who wrote it he got um two bowls of custard and wired wired them up with some kind of uh a resist, resistance sensors, I think, to the computer, and then okay. the, two, the, the two players both have to punch the custard as hard as they can within ten seconds, and the computer measures how firm the custard has become oh, as a result of, of their of their punching it, and Therefore, the winner is the person who punch, punches yeah. the custard the most. Okay, that that's kind of cool. Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's all this, it's all part of the same kind of physics. Um, but the other aspect of the suit, the, the cloaking technology, is obviously something that we see paraded around the media every time there's any sort of potential advancement in, in cloaking or in hiding things from any sort of wavelength of light. But um, again, it, it is, I mean, if you look at, the thing that I find really interesting when researching this episode is, is some of the work in, in man-made metamaterials. Now, I will say right now that I am not a physicist by any okay. training. I, I studied biology at university. So... Um, but man-made mesh materials, my understanding of them is that currently they're able to um, use these materials to reflect microwaves. Um, so in, in essence, cloaking things, objects from microwave light, which is pretty okay. fascinating. But we're nowhere near um, getting this to work in the visible spectrum. And, and this is, this is a much more fundamental approach than the other approach to kind of invisible cars that people have tried where they, you, you know, cover... You cover the car in uh, little, cam- cameras, little, little yeah. projectors and cameras mm-hmm. on the other side, and then you just project through whatever was there. Yeah, this is actually engineering materials which, which fundamentally reflect that light. Um, yeah, I, I'm, it's been a while since I've since yeah. I read the the paper which explained this to me once. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it, it it's nice to see that. I, I mean, in the episode, I was very clear to. I mean, the whole point of the what if machine is n- is never to be like, oh, I see this thing in games. Could we have this? Yes, we could. Yes. <laughs> Look at this; it's exactly the same. No, it's very much if something is 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 not the same or completely implausible, we shoot it down. But then the fun is explaining why it's not possible. And with right. the cloaking one, it was really a sense of well, you know, there's some cool stuff in cloaking with microwaves, and so you know, theoretically it's not impossible in the laws of physics to do this but constructing material is probably incredibly difficult and potentially impossible um but you know it, it's the type of thing that that maybe in the future could could be utilized um whereas often you see in the media um as soon as there's any advancement it's harry potter cloak in 10 years you know and, <laughs> and that gets kind of that gets old fast and i think it also raises public expectation of of what science can can provide for us yeah, in much the same way that the public expectation of artificial intelligence is raised, right? Yeah. Like people, people expect way too much from these things. Exactly.
So that was uh, City at Speed by Saber Pulse, who uh, I'd never heard of, but I've discovered that he's um, collaborated with various artists I really like, including Henry Homesweet. Yeah, so the reason why he's in here is um, he was never actually on a Wipeout soundtrack, but if, if Studio Liverpool, the developer who made the, you know, the classic Wipeout games, if they hadn't gone under, very sadly, recently, I would imagine that he would be like the perfect artist to be on any new Wipeout game. So right. I figured it's, you know, it's a good time to, to kind of play, play some of him because his music's really great. But the reason why I want to talk about Wipeout is because it was, in fact, it's the most recent episode of the What If Machine we did. And I basically did it for one reason because I wanted to do that cool experiment with the Type 2 superconductors, which people might have seen on YouTube. Basically, the experiment goes that you, you take a, a Type 2 superconductor, which is, is a type of superconductor that has um, tiny little kind of uh, variations in it. It's kind of imperfect. And you obviously need to cool it down with, uh, with li- liquid nitrogen um, for it to act as a superconductor. But then it displays this amazing properties in a magnetic field. So if you get like a strip of magnets, and you place the superconductor on top of this magnets, it will actually become quantumly locked by the magnetic field lines and will hover wow. for until, it, until the temperature rises too much and it stops superconducting. It's fascinating. I mean, I mean have you seen this experiment yourself, Will? I think so. I, 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 I'm remembering seeing, seeing the thing, things levitating in various like, surprising ways. Yeah, I mean, they actually, it was made famous by a YouTube video about maybe about a year ago by a group in from Tel Aviv University. Um, oh, and this is the one, with the, one with the table? Yes, exactly. Yes, I have on, seen this one. It can kind of go around on top. I mean, it's, it, because it's locked in place, it can go on, like, on, top of, on top of these magnets. Or if you invert the magnets upside down, it will stay locked. And they even featured it on the, uh, the Royal Institution Christmas lectures this year as well. Um, huh. So it's a fantastic experiment. So uh, I, you know, I wanted to have a go because it, it's a great analog, maybe, for the type of technology in Wipeout. So Wipeout is all about racing these kind of floating cars around futuristic tracks at breakneck speed listening to fast-paced dance electro and it's it's a lot of fun um but it's quite again this quantum physics is like this quantum locking or quantum levitation as it's known is quite a nice potential explanation for how wipeout could happen in real life there's a lot of provisos though <coughs> excuse me yeah, of course no on you go um because I mean, it has to be different in some ways from the from existing magnetic levitation, which is used by maglev trains in the, in the actual world, right? Yeah, I mean, the difference is that a maglev maglev train is very much confined to the track, right? Um, right. Whereas, conceivably, you could have a whole layer of, of a whole track of these magnets, and and you could move along them and remain locked, kind of like in Wiper, where where you have this space in the track where you could fly, um, and so yeah, it, it's a really nice. It's a really nice idea. The one problem is, obviously, if you think about it, if, if the track was all, was all um, magnets and your, your cars were these superconductors, and this is the way we did our little experiment. We had a ring of magnets and we had the superconductor levitating around it. Then, unfortunately, superconductors are incredibly brittle. So one crash and uh, it would probably s- snap. And you'd have to find a way of, of uh, supercooling these cars all the time. Um, so that's going to be expensive. Presumably, presum- and presumably they have to... St- there's not much of a margin for error there if they warm no. up for more than a few minutes presumably it's yeah all over. yeah your, your car would if, if you're imagining racing one of these your car would pretty swiftly fall to the ground and, and be useless um just, just think how the new york times would uh, review that one <laughs> yeah exactly after their recent shenanigans reviewing electric cars and uh, hypothetically allegedly talking up how often they need to be charged and so on 
Yeah, I know. Um, I, I, I didn't actually see. I, I think I, I saw people tweeting about that, but I never saw the whole story. But that sounds quite. That sounds quite interesting. So, what exactly have they done? Have they done oh, just to so, diverge? Well, so, so there's a there's a, there's a car called the uh, Tesla made by um, mm. Elon Musk's company. It's a it's an electric car of some description. Um, and the New York Times test drove it and said that it performed really badly and it ran out um, of, of power hmm. and it did, you know, didn't, didn't charge as far as it was supposed to and didn't, didn't go as far as it was supposed to. And uh, the uh, retaliation was that these cars have uh, built-in GPS logging. Hmm. And ever since Top Gear did a um, totally fabricated review of it, um, Tesla enable it for all uh, review cars. Oh, I see. So and they, they published s- a whole article saying, you know, at this point, uh, the, the reviewer... Um, went into a car park and drove forward and backwards continuously for half an hour, trying desperately to run the engine down and so on. Whoa, really? That's terrible. And of course, you know, the New York Times have retaliated saying that actually this is not the case, you know, that that there are some of the numbers are slightly wrong because we did kind of notes on a piece of paper type note taking rather than GPS logging. But the Mm. facts are still there. So it's basically a big mudslinging. Wow. Okay. But but, but the, the, the crux of their complaint about the car is that it runs down quickly. Mm, well, so I can only imagine how that would be with a superconductor. <laughs> yeah, no, this this certainly would run down very very quickly. But the beauty of it is, um, what if if your vehicle is superconducting, then in terms of propulsion, you really don't need much because there's no friction with the ground. You've just got right. you just got air resistance, air friction to worry about. Um, so it doesn't take much. You just need a a big fan on the back of your of your car, or even or strap a jet on there, and you've got something that goes stupidly fast. So again, it's quite a nice, quite a nice analog. The other interesting um, kind of way, maybe way to solve the problem of these of these brittle, super cooled racers is to do it the other way around. So if you imagine having the track as a one big superconductor, right. and then you've got these magnets, but then you have the problem of all the cars would stick together. So <laughs> it's not a it's not a it's not a perfect analog by any means. But it, it was a lot of fun to explore. I mean, we actually went down to. Um, to where did we go into cambridge yes we went to cambridge and chatted to andrew morris um who's a a theoretical physicist there and he set up this experiment for us and it was it was fascinating too and he was a big fan of wipeout too which which was which always helps perfect perfect so he so he he didn't have to explain twice the point the point of this oh no he knew exactly what we were getting at which was which was always (laughs) helpful but that's something i find a lot doing the what if machine actually whenever i call out to to experts saying, hey, who would like to provide an interview? It's amazing. Maybe I shouldn't be surprised, but it's amazing the number of you know, practicing researchers who are, all have a great fondness for video games and all grew up with them. So it's, I think there's maybe a shared interest, shared interest yeah. there. And I wonder to what extent it's, it's, um, it, games have helped to uh, trigger people's interest in science. Hmm, absolutely. Um, I mean, I guess coming back to what we were talking about with uh, with with Deus Ex, you know, if 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 games are depicting things which are not possible but are almost possible, then maybe that that might be a good incentive for people to think, oh, actually, yeah, maybe I should get into cybernetics and try and make this happen. Yeah, I think I think it's the same. I, I wouldn't want to say it was just games. I think any I think science fiction has that ability, no matter what medium it's in.
that was uh, Muse with Space Dementia from uh, Origin of Symmetry. Yeah, a bit of an old Muse number there. I've, to be honest, I've never really got on board with their last few albums, partially yeah. from laziness, partially because they're everywhere. But I was a big fan of Space Dementia and, in fact, the whole album. The reason why I picked this song is because I want to talk about Mass Effect, which, if you are unfamiliar, Mass Effect is um, basically the Star Trek of video game franchises. So it's this huge space opera epic series where where you play this this character who basically has to save the galaxy over and over and over but it's it's a wonderful game actually and it's got some great science fiction in it both in terms of the way they get around the the obvious issue of traveling around the galaxy and also how they deal with aliens and some of the science of the aliens you meet so it's it's a really rich a really rich playing ground for um for finding some really interesting science fiction um, but also another point about Space Dementia, um, a, li- a fact which I always thought was true, and then I was looking it up yesterday because I wanted to talk about it, and then I doubted that maybe I'd made it up. But actually, that kind of piano bit at the beginning of the song is actually um, a fa- is a sample of a famous piece of Rachmaninoff. So any, anyone, oh, anyone really? into uh, classical music may well recognize that. That, that that reminds me of uh, a while ago listening to a a, a, a kind of a, a filler track on an ocean size album called mm. Un- Unravel, which I realized about ten years after first hearing it. It's a pun on Unravel, as in the um, oh. romantic romantic composer, and it's it's a sample of uh, one of his pieces. Wow, or, or, or of you know four seconds of it that looped and messed with. Oh yeah, but, that's the same here. It's it's only it's only like a very small part of. Of one of his pieces and it's just kind right. of played over it's when the at the beginning of the song when it really starts to pick up um that's that's uh-huh. the kind of sample so not the kind of plinky plug intro but the the piano right, that right. plays behind the main riff but yeah that's... so um so mass effect if if you are if you're not a gamer i highly recommend that if you were gonna, if you were going to play it if i had to think if i was going to tell anyone to to play a, a video game and they like the idea of a role-playing game i would say play mass effect 2 it's a wonderful wonderful game and uh, it's got some great story and we did an episode about um, particularly space travel in Mass Effect, but I've also looked into and done other episodes about kind of aliens and um, kind of also some of the other parts, some of the other science from the series. But the way they get around around space travel in Mass Effect is they have these these relays, which what what they call relays, and they essentially, they essentially function like wormholes, which is quite interesting. Um, <clears throat> so, 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 so this is to get around the fact that um, faster than light tra- travel is impossible, yes. and flying through space to alien worlds would take the entire game. Yes, otherwise. I mean exactly. I mean, if if we were to, with current technology, if we were to try to just visit our neighbouring star, Alpha Centauri, I think it would take us about six hundred thousand years to get there. So it's something nuts. Completely, yeah, it may as well be for all time, right? When, when you're in, right, when right, you're right. in that length of time. So um, we went to Oxford University and chatted to um, Dr. Colin Wilson, who's a planetary scientist. And in fact, he is a really interesting chap. He, in his lab, they've got a Mars wind tunnel. So you know, when he oh. told me that, I had to go and film it because it looks awesome. But it's a, a wind tunnel. Where... So, so, so this 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 is a wind tunnel that tries to simulate the um, environment on Mars. Exactly, or... simulates the wow. conditions on the surface of Mars. They use it not for for putting people inside because you know that that wouldn't be good, but for putting instrumentation, basically thermometers and parts that wind up on um, the Martian rovers. Basically, I think they had a couple of parts which they built and tested there, which were on. Um, either spirit or opportunity and also possibly more recently on curiosity as well so a really a really interesting lab and a, a really a really interesting chap and um i was asking him about the the prospect of faster than light travel or ways around that and you know he was basically saying 
faster than light travel is is, is a no go. But but what if you can warp space? Space time around around an object, and that seems to be theoretically at least. It's obviously we're nowhere near doing this, but theoretically, it seems like the best example or the best kind of possibilities where this could maybe be done. Well, wasn't this the plot of uh, Event Horizon? Except it, they that they accidentally warped space time into hell. Yeah, pretty much. Um, it's it's that kind of it's that idea. It's nothing. It's not a new idea. Um, but I think there he was telling me about a chap in America who is trying to do this on like a, a monumentally small scale and um, is is convinced he can demonstrate that this is theoretically possible, which is quite interesting. But I think, no. to, I think to create, um, uh, say, you know, a, a wormhole or, or, or a, to, to be able to fold um, space-time around some sort of craft would require the energy from 100 suns or something ridiculous. So I, I can't remember exactly what it was. That, I'm probably overestimating it, but it's some ridiculous amount of energy that we're not going to have access to. But, but it seems like theoretically this type of, moving space time and then moving fast through that kind of like pocket of space time is maybe theoretically the only way this could ever happen and so and so presumably the um the setup in mass effect involves having kind of in, uh, fixed installations where you can jump from point a to point b and then point b to point c Precisely. so all you have to do is all you have to do is get onto one of these nodes of this network yes exactly and, th- and then you can get you can get around it wherever you want just like an underground yeah that's exactly right and they're called the gold mass relays but yes that's exactly right um, so yeah, again, it's 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 not anything we're going to be building anytime soon. But it's a, it's again, it's it's science fiction that has been thought about, you know, bearing the, the kind of constraints of science in mind. And I think for me, that's what I've discovered when when doing the What If Machine and really thinking a lot about science fiction and games. And I've been pleasantly surprised by, in general, the amount of attention to detail that developers go through when trying to create these universes. <clears throat> and I think the reason people do that is because they realize, and I think it's something that as a as a player of these games, it really hits home. They realize that the closer something is, as the, the more conceivable an idea is, the more believable it is, and the more it kind of sucks you into the fiction. And I think that's also a real challenge of creating science fiction in a video game, especially at Mass Effect. Now, if you're not familiar, it's a, it's a role-playing game. So, you know, you can make multiple choices along the way and the game adapts right. to those choices. Now, from a developer point of view, that's a bit of a nightmare because you have to... You have, you have, to, to, you have to implement every possible thing that any player of the game could ever choose to do. Exactly. So, obviously, the, the numbers of choices are not infinite by any means. You know, they're set paths, but you've still got to do every path and every path has to be coherent with the universe. And they also have... Because of that, you need to have a whole lot of lore of, of all of the different... So, basically, histories, yeah. fake histories right. of of the kind of the different alien races and and there's really complex politics and there's one race which um used to be at war with another race and then so that race then engineered this thing called the genophage which then stopped the other race from ever breeding again so there's a whole lot of like these really weird ethical and really interesting ethical um kind of debates going on and issues going on and that's actually very similar to one of the strategies that that scientists are using to try and stop the spread of malaria by basically using essentially a genophage to stop mosquitoes from oh, being so, able so, so, to to kind of produce offspring. So again, there's this parallels wow. all the way throughout this game with with real life, which which is really interesting. And you just got to, just got to hope that someone doesn't so doesn't decide, hey, we can use that same mosquito technology on people. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think that the, what what I wouldn't worry too much about it because of my understanding of the treatment it causes. And when it is a pro, it causes an issue in mosquito development when they don't actually um, develop this 
semi-permeable membrane around them uh it didn't develop properly and as a result they just kind of drown i think so it's oh, not something yeah. luckily we because we don't have not, a, we don't have subtle. a larval stage so we'll be okay <laughs> yeah the lack of the lack of the larval stage is the main thing yeah. protecting us from uh <laughs> disaster exactly um so i think that's about all we have time for today unfortunately which i'm really really sorry it's been super interesting um where can people find out more about the what if machine um well yeah if you just go to gainspot.com and um then you can go to if you click on shows you can go to the what if machine or to be honest if you just google the what if machine that's the easiest way you can all of our shows are on youtube and gamespot you can watch them all there i've kind of rambled and picked bits and bobs from the various different episodes and probably got some of them confused and mixed up with others so to get the real to get the real story i recommend going and checking them out and also dropping us a comment if you were planning season three at the moment or planning all our future episodes so if you have a topic if you're a video gamer and you have a topic you would like us to cover then please do you know leave a comment on one of the videos or you can always tweet me and my twitter handle is at camfrazrob we'll put a link to that in the show notes in case people people uh, can't transcribe that and the show notes will be online at uh, scienceoffiction.co.uk as ever where you can listen to uh, past episodes and subscribe to the podcast for future episodes uh, thanks very much for joining us Cam. no problem thanks will 